Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you. I hope that you are doing well this morning and uh, feeling awake and alert. It's an it's a incredible privilege that we have each week, and I hope you don't take it for granted. The opportunity to come and to worship the Lord, to sing, uh, to sing songs of, that point us to Jesus and at the same time lift our spirits, and it's a privilege to be standing in this spot today and to be presenting God's Word to you. I want to say right up front, I'm grateful for the, each of you and how you served. Those of you that were able to serve yesterday during City Serve Kids, uh, the impact that that had in our community. Um, eternity will tell, but there was also just some uh, good uh, results that we saw that really say that God was working in those things. If by chance you're a guest here or you're watching online as a result of uh, meeting our church yesterday, we want to say welcome. Thanks so much for uh, just being part of this service and this time. Today we continue our study in the book of John, our Believe and Live series. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have Bibles and also uh, John scripture journals that are in our Welcome Center lobby. Uh, you're free to grab one of those to use during our times of study, and that's yours to keep. Uh, but we love God's Word here and are excited for the opportunity once again to study. Uh, today we'll be in John chapter 11, beginning verse 45. And if you didn't happen to attend or catch the message that Pastor Ryan uh, preached last week, today is going to seem kind of like uh, a movie a little bit, if you will. And it's one of those movies where you know it starts and it, it, you're watching the beginning and it, you're like, what is this? It's like a chaotic moment and things going on. You're like, I need the backstory of what's going on. And kind of one of those movies for me in our house is the movie Ratatouille. Um, call me crazy. Yes, I am an adult, but somehow I still go back and watch some animated flicks for fun, uh, even if the kids aren't present. But telling on myself. But all that to say is it's that kind of moment where you're, you're watching the beginning, as that movie has, and you're like, what in the world's going on? And you need the next five to ten minutes to catch you up on the story. I'm not going to give you all of that. What I'm going to tell you is chapter 11 is the story of Jesus resurrecting or raising Lazarus from the dead. And what we get today is going to be what the outflow of that or the response, the reactions that took place from the people, the leaders, and even the followers of Jesus when they saw that miracle take place. Because a perspective we need right up front this morning is you don't see someone rise from the dead and that not impact you. Can we just agree on that? Not sure how many of you have seen that. If you have, I'd love to talk with you after the service. But to that, this is one of those moments in time that it, if we set our mind and attention around understanding this scene a little bit, there is an understanding that this is an impactful moment. And all of these things are happening about a week before the Passover, which is right at the time of Jesus being crucified. So a lot of things begin to happen as we set up for Holy Week. This morning, I want to invite you, though, to grab your Bibles. John chapter 11, we're going to begin reading in verse 45 and go through verse 11 of chapter 12. Here's what the word of the Lord says to us. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, he being Jesus, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? 
For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to this time of opening your word and we first just say thank you for it. Thank you for the privilege to read your words, your truth. God, we recognize within ourselves we, we lack the ability to understand this fully. And so, Lord, we ask that you... Your Holy Spirit would give us understanding. Or where our eyes may be blinded, would you open them this morning? Where our hearts are hardened, would you soften? God, that our time today, we would be found to love you more and know you more. So God, fill me with your words and give us clear understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we come and Lazarus has been dead four days. And he just emerged from the tomb at the command of Jesus. The crowd of Jews that gathered is, is struck on how they're going to respond. And the problem was there was no denying what had just happened. The religious leaders who had been already scheming and looking for ways to get rid of Jesus, if you will. And so in our passage today, we're going to examine three different responses that show up in, in, throughout our passage from chapter 11 through chapter 12 here. 
And the first one that I'd point you to this morning that we're going to use is to see some that want to kill Jesus. Some who want to kill Jesus. Now for this first 10 minutes, if you will, I'm going to ask you, I know the weather outside has got a nice, heavy heaviness to it, and this time of comfort seating and hopefully not a monotone voice can be soothing to the mind and the ears. Let me encourage you, just hang with me here for 10 minutes. I want to I want to spend a few minutes hopefully helping you understand what's going on in this passage, who some of the key players are, because I believe it's going to help us understand the meaning and hopefully learn more about Jesus right here. So two responses that we are shown by the crowd here in verse 46 of chapter 11. And that is this. Many of the Jews saw this miracle and they believed. Meaning they expressed faith in Jesus and they believed in him, believing that he was the Messiah. Then there were those that went and they told the Pharisees who were already escalating in their desire to see Jesus go away, rather killed if possible. And so to help us, I want to give us some terminology here and some understanding of some key people that are here. You hear it in the New Testament. If you don't know it, this is a good spot to take some notes and just kind of help with some New Testament learning here. We've got two different groups of people right here that show up, Sadducees and Pharisees. They were the ruling class of Jews in Israel. They held office, if you will, in such a way to help keep the Old Testament law that we find written in the first five books of the Bible. The main difference between these two were in how they interpreted the Old Testament. The Sadducees were very much by the book. As it was written, so they believed, so they held to. Pharisees, the same, they held to the law, but they held to oral tradition, meaning how it was passed down interpreted from generation to generation. They took the Words that were written and then held on to the meaning as it was passed down through the generations. Sadducees were 100% literal in their interpretation. Now socially, Sadducees were mostly the wealthy elites and held the more powerful positions like chief priests, high priests. Pharisees were more representative of the common working person and thus they had the respect of the majority of people. Jesus had more run-ins with the Pharisees, though, than he did the Sadducees, usually because of how he taught and conflicted with how the oral tradition of the law was passed down. What you'll notice in Jesus' teachings is that he never contradicted the Old Testament, but how the interpretation of it being from tradition to how Jesus said, here is what this means, that's where the conflicts arose. Sadducees, though, they were very friendly with Rome, which will help us in our understanding of a couple things in a second. And so they were also friendly to, friendlier to Roman laws. Now, all of this in here, if you're still hanging on, stay with me, a couple more, took place in, a, in built to this arena, if you will, of a Supreme Court or council in our text it's referred to. Technical term that we find written in Scripture at times is also called the Sanhedrin. All right, in verse 47, it's referred to as the council. This was a 71-member Supreme Court that you had 35 and 35 of just the Jewish leaders, and then you can see in the illustration on the screen, the center person was the high priest who served as, if you will, the tie vote breaker. Now, they were, they were Sadducees, Pharisees didn't get along at all. However, they were united in their mutual hatred for Jesus. So they didn't agree on many things. However, in this one thing, they were together. 
Now, we've got the differing reports of the stories that were coming out from Lazarus rising from the dead. Like we said, this isn't something you just witness and walk away from not impacted. And so what they have, though, is they're going, how are we going to get rid of this? What, what are we going to do about this? We see in verse 47. Interesting about that question. They're not questioning now whether or not Jesus performed this miracle. They're going, what are we going to do about this? You see, there's a problem when you have a lot of witnesses that physically identify something. It's no longer what we call, I guess, circumstantial, but you have the proof of that. Along with that, rough estimates of the population of Jerusalem have it around 100,000 people. So all of this taking place, a chaotic scene, and not to mention this is the single focus conversation of how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and it is impacting lives, not just because of a news story, but because it comes with whether or not they believe Jesus is who he says he is or not. And as he continues to do ministry and perform miracles, the reasons are starting to diffuse and fall away. And so now we're getting to the core of the heart issue, and that is, what are we going to do about this? Now, the Jews feared loss of their influence and control of the people. And we see that again in verse 47. They say, Romans will come and take away our place, and they'll take away our nation. Israel was ultimately under the Roman Empire, but the Romans allowed the council, Sanhedrin, that Supreme Court group, to legislate, to rule the country as long as things remain peaceful. So that's why we see Caiaphas here in a minute. They, they become worried because if things become hostile and confused, the Romans say, hey, we're coming in and we're going to fix things. So this tension was very palpable with Jesus being seen as the outlaw leading the entire rebellion. Now, we have this scene of confusion showing up in the council where they're like, what are we going to do? And, and imagine the stress. I mean, we're talking about people that are, are, these leaders are there and they're like, what do we do with this? If, if the people believe in him, then they won't believe us and our control is gone. But we know he's not the Christ or so they would say because of the way they interpreted how it should look. And so we have the high priest showing up. His name's Caiaphas, a Sadducee. As a Sadducee, by the way, he, they did not believe in the resurrection. And so he also had a good working relationship with the Romans. And so he was not likely interested in a common man from Galilee showing up and persuading the people to think otherwise. And so his solution, if you will, speaking with an arrogant tone, he says, it's better for one man to die for us than the whole nation of Israel to perish. The blunt translation is, hey, let's end the chaos by killing this man because otherwise we're going to lose our role and our position. In verse 51 and 52, we learn that Caiaphas had prophesied earlier in the year that Jesus would die and that he would die for the nation and that his death would bring the Jews back together. Now, it can be easy, be easy here on first reading of this text to, to go, well, isn't that what Jesus came to do? We'll come to that. But what Caiaphas is saying here is he's not prophesying in, a, in any way that's generous toward the gospel. He's prophesying in a way that is only generous to himself and the ego of the religious leaders. In essence, he's saying, hey, 
this Jesus, he's going to die. But in doing so, it's going to unite the Jews that are dispersed around. And they're going to come back. And all the Jewish nation is going to come back together as one. And so it, there was no grounding in, hey, Jesus is going to come and he's going to unify the world. But what we find is the sovereignty of God shows up. If, if that's a new term to you, sovereignty of God simply means there's no limits to God's power, ruler, control, and whatever man intends or sets out to do, God ultimately still has ruler power to affect and change according to his will and plan. Caiaphas intended his words to be the extinction of Jesus when actually God was fulfilling his own plan to change the world. It was fulfilled that Jesus would die and salvation would be made available to all of us. And the Lord's sacrificial death is unifying of not only Israel, but for the children of God who are throughout the world. In other words, Jews and Gentiles. Hearing a plan that felt, the Jewish leaders felt they could justify, the council now agreed the plan is to put Jesus to death. They arrived, the religious leaders, with their rules and the laws that we know of the Old Testament, thou shalt not kill, they justify it, that they are preserving, in essence, preserving their faith. And so they make the plan to kill Jesus. Interesting, just our quick tag note, in chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, we see there is also a plot to kill Lazarus. Poor guy, he, he's kind of a key witness in this. He didn't really do anything. He died, illness, and... Four days afterwards, Jesus raises him from the dead. The problem is, he's the person that Jesus raised. And so there is the working of taking care of Lazarus. So the side note here is just, it's interesting how far our sin will take us to justify its actions or to accomplish its plans, isn't it? You ever thought about that? How far we go to justify our sin and even to come to the place of accomplishing our plans. So in application, what we find is several things. Some of you may find yourself in the position of these Jewish leaders. And I'm, what I'm saying is I'm not suggesting that you want to kill Jesus, but you would certainly be okay to see his influence and conviction depart. That, it wouldn't, that you wouldn't have to deal with the influence of Christ. And we see this attitude of wanting to kill Jesus in our world today, don't we? There are constant pushes, whether in morality, sexuality, education, or legislation, to remove and expel godly connections or influence from our world and culture. It's this idea that man should serve as his own God and not be subject to the Almighty God. The Lord is gracious, though, and he allows us this path but we must recognize that these decisions have their consequences. Now, you may think it would be easier for your life if Jesus just left you alone. Maybe your life is better and happier, you think, if Jesus just didn't exist. Maybe like Caiaphas, you have your kingdom, your position, your pride, yourself at the top of many moments. And for many moments, this is so satisfying to you. There's control, there's security because I can see and know what I'm doing. There's no room for Jesus in that. So you don't desire to kill him, but you do wish that he would be silent and just leave you alone. 
Yet I would like to suggest to us that it is the conviction that is, it is the conviction of Jesus that is perhaps one of his most loving actions to us. That Jesus would conflict with us and he would challenge our thinking. And you go, but it makes me miserable. How can that be? I'm not happier if I'm not allowed certain things or control. But what if those things were the very things that were killing your soul? Would it be our genuine heart to say, I'd rather have it all for now and risk eternity? So Jesus, for that, would you please be gone? No, just as a loving parent who disagrees with their child, knowing that I need to help them understand truth, that they're wrong, that they need to change their ways. Otherwise, when they mature, some awful things that are going to happen. May we see Jesus in that same regard that there's conviction that, no, we can't just reject his truth and push him away. But it is, hear this carefully, it is undeserved grace that God would convict us and be very present. And I pray today that hopefully your heart is softened to hear that Jesus is a pursuer and a convictor of our souls. But even so, I want to point your attention to a passage of Scripture that should we refuse to acknowledge Jesus or to seek to kill his influence, whether we agree with the actions of this world or do so from a personal level in our heart, I want to remind us of the words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that at the end of time, just hear the word here. It says, therefore, in verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him being Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Under the earth is the dead. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the world may seek to kill him, but Jesus will return in a victory that will leave even those who denied him humbled and confessing that he is Lord. May we be found as a people that confess him as Lord willingly with our hearts and not as we stand in a place of judgment. Now looking further in our text, we see that Jesus is fully aware of the plot on his life and he withdraws to a desert region and we were told it's in Ephraim until the appointed time for him to come at the triumphal entry around the Passover. John tells us that many people were coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, cleansing themselves. So imagine a lot of guests coming in, highlight time of the year, and we've got significant tension going on with what do we do with this Jesus? And so Jesus removes himself, and then in chapter 12, we change scenes. We go from Jerusalem to a home in Bethany in the desert region there, and we find six days away from the Passover, we find Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it takes us there, and in this dinner that we come to, it likely occurred the Saturday before Holy Week. Martha was in charge of the meal, and Lazarus present at the table, no doubt still in awe of the work of what Jesus has done and how he has moved. And we see in this that Mary arises with a pound of expensive nard and anoints the feet of Jesus using her hair to wipe it with. We learn from Judas that this ointment was worth about 300 denarii. 
And then we read in verses 4 through 6 John's attitude, and we get a perspective of Judas that it, it doesn't leave us thinking, you know, John really thought a lot of Judas here. He was a high character guy. No, we, we, you read that and you think, no, he, he was very clear, even in the parentheses there, to give us the backstory of, of what would ultimately happen with him. And so we come now to point two here, and that is some want to use Jesus. Focusing for these few minutes here on Judas's role. As one of the disciples, he served as a treasurer, if you will. He would take care of the funds that were given for the work of the ministry. And his job was to keep them safe, be accountable for how they were used, that the poor were cared for, that the funds were used appropriately. But in verse 6, we learn that Judas would help himself to the money and spend it for himself. In this scenario, John helps us see that Judas was not focused on the economical impact or loss that Mary's actions were going to cause. In fact, we see 300 denarii was considered an entire year's worth of wages. It was enough to be a family's emergency fund, perhaps even a retirement. And so John's attitude reflects he didn't for one second believe Judas had a right motive. And so Judas would use his position for financial gain. No doubt many people, think with me if you will, saw Judas as a true believer. I mean, after all, he kept the right company, didn't he? He was with Jesus. He was one of the 12. He, he would say the right things, probably did many good works, but his heart was not fully trusting in Jesus. And in fact, he was using Jesus to benefit himself and along the way stealing. Now... Judas is not usually in a conversation of who's your favorite Bible character. Most people don't go, I'll take Judas. Just not, not the icon we're after there when we talk about Judas Iscariot. But his attitude and actions of using Jesus are something we are sadly accustomed to seeing in our present time. Perhaps even something we've dealt with in our own hearts. And I want to just for a few minutes point to just ask us to consider ways that we're tempted to use Jesus. First one would be the temptation of prosperity. In other words, I will love and follow Jesus because he will give me the desires of my heart, love, money, and fame. And the list is probably sadly long uh, in this world that of what has been stolen or embezzled in money that was given as an offering to the Lord or that was yielded and saying, Lord, I'll give you my heart as long as, boom, This temptation shows up in our own deceptive hearts. We see the opportunity for prosperity in all these areas. Why? Because we understand who Jesus is. We understand, he says, ask anything in my name. And we take hold of that, but it's so hard to yield and go, but God, I surrender my will that if you choose not to answer the way I'm praying, I trust in the way that you will work it out. And so there's this temptation that works at our hearts here. And it's so easy to talk about our commitment to Christ and how we pray and our prayers being answered the way we want, relationships going the way we like, and yet I fear that many of us are guilty of using Jesus to make us feel better, but not truly being submissive. I would argue this is one of the areas we see lukewarm Christianity show up, where someone that claims to be a believer and goes with the flow, but you wonder where their faith is in the difficult seasons. Lukewarm Christian, who, let's be honest, probably not a Christian at all. One that shows up in in ways that 
Yet when it's church, when it's time to turn it on, flip the switch, I'm there. But you change my environment, you change my people. The authenticity of my faith dissipates. Judas operated in this realm of appearing to be a believer right next to Jesus, yet he was days away from being possessed by the devil and betraying the Christ. Number two, there's the, the temptation to conditionally serve. It doesn't take much effort for you and I to try and weigh the elements of give and take. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where you, you, we understand scripture just kind of teaches, man, serve. God gave his life to serve us and we're called to serve him. But there's this balance that lives inside of us of this give and take that says, I will serve accordingly, but there's got to be some give back here. Like there, there's got to be a level of give back. And, and we don't have to teach ourselves that if there's not enough receiving going on, then the serving has a struggle. Everybody understand? You with me here? A couple of you need to do a head nod here. You're going to sleep. Hang with me. All right? That, that we're, we're like balancing and, and like, I'll serve, but, and, and can I just confess that this is the tendency of my own heart, I find, is that somehow I want to get to the place at the end of serving, whatever that proverbial line is, and throw up my hands at God and go, Really? Have I not served enough? Or does this not earn that, God, you would now give me favor, that you would answer this request, that you would relieve this tension? You might find this in your marriage, that you find, Lord, I'm trying to seek and to serve my spouse, but God, there's just, con- like, how do we work through this? How do I serve them more when I feel like I'm being emptied out? Or maybe as a parent, you're seeing your children and you're, you're pouring into them and every day just feels like all I'm doing is giving. Lord, where in the world does the receiving come back in pouring into my kids? And I believe, church family, what we'll find in Scripture is that Scripture doesn't teach that there, there's an end point to this. That there's an end to our serving. That we draw a line and go, and for that reason, I'm out. Now, I will quickly confess as probably the chief of sinners in the room right here that there is a maturing of our own hearts that has to be founded and grounded in Christ to continue when there's not reciprocal receiving. But the tendency of our heart is to use Jesus even to going, Lord, I'll serve and do, but I need the reward to keep me going, fuel my fire. And don't hear me say that is not a great thing. But I think we'll find at the core that what Jesus calls us to is so much more than filling our own personal self. The third temptation that we come to is the temptation to only take, similar to the first two, but this one is, it's consumer Christianity. Lord, I will serve you, but it's going to be limited. Consumer Christianity means, hey, I'm going to be part of a local church, but... I'm here for what it gives to me, all right? If, if I'm getting, getting the emotions met, if I'm getting good teaching, I, I, I'm here for that. And, but I'm not necessarily here for the giving. That's using the Lord. That's using his house of worship. The, the transformation of knowing and identifying with Christ should reveal itself through our worship and the giving of our time. Maybe you've been wounded in past 
church experiences, whether here or other church, and it clouds your ability to give, whether your time, talents, or treasures. And I would point you to consider that there's no perfect church, no perfect Christians, but we're called to be faithful. And I can tell you, even in this place, that this staff desires to be people of integrity that walk with Jesus, to make decisions, whether financial, business, or ministerially, that would honor the Lord first and point your hearts to Jesus. You see, Jesus did not come that we might use him to fill our human desires, but that we might believe and follow. And that takes us to the last response that we see, and that is others chose to believe in Jesus. In the last few minutes looking at Judas, I want us to transition and end our time focusing around the response of Mary and her actions. Certainly, when we look at chapter 12, this was a dinner that she came prepared to offer sacrifice of worship to the Lord, but very likely not knowing all that would be meant from her actions. We find that the spice, that the ointment that she used was called nard, or all other times referred to as spike nard. And we read in verse 3 of chapter 12 that the fragrance was so great of the perfume, it filled the entire house. Now, inquiring minds want to know, I'm sure, what in the world does nard smell like? I, I don't have nard cologne. Um, don't really use that anyway. But nard is this. It's a special oil that's extracted from the root of an Indian nard plant. It's said to smell like... Hold your breath for this one. It's said to smell of deep, earthy, woody, and musky. We all need a bottle. Nard is an expensive fragrance that was used as an incense offering in the temple, and, listen closely, it was used to prepare a body for burial. The cost of the oil represented Mary's giving out of her wealth. She and her family aren't mentioned that we can tell as wealthy people. I believe we see them as common folks. And so this gift of hers is extravagant. I mean, this, is, this isn't just, okay, I'm giving an offering or I'm blessing, I'm going to worship the Lord. This is, this is extra. This is extravagant here, giving out of her abundance. And she took and poured this expensive oil on the sweaty, dust-filled feet of Jesus and then bent over and cleaned it off with her hair. Not just a simple pour over, but the physical action. These are the physical actions of a slave with expensive ointment. I I dare say all of us, if we were in the room witnessing this action, we would kind of be pressed back a second. Like, what in the world is going on? Like, probably even asking a bit of, Lord guard our hearts here, a bit of Judas's question. Like, my goodness, what are you doing? Like, that's a whole year's worth. And yet, Mary was worshiping the one she knew as the Messiah. She was worshiping her Lord. And she saw her, him firsthand raise her brother from the dead. The miracle of miracles, death defeated, where decay was set in, organs had shut down four days and brought back to life and very much in the presence of them right then. This type of death-to-life miracle, again, we say, it's not one you just overcome and you get past, but one that transforms us radically and causes us to appreciate. Mary's anointing of Jesus is symbolic in how it is preparatory for Jesus' body to be bruised, I'm sorry, not bruised, but buried a few days later 
just a week from this time, the same ointments that she was putting on him would have been the same ones that they would have put on his body in preparation for the tomb. And the comparisons abound of this theater that is taking place in this room with Mary anointing the feet of Jesus and then the image of Judas, as we just discovered, just feet away. And we find a a few things here. Listen, Listen, if you will. Mary is giving out of her greatest abundance. And Judas is upset that there's not more he can take. Mary was living out an authentic faith while Judas was living a complete lie. Mary is symbolically preparing Jesus for saving sinners while Judas is focused on building his earthly kingdom. You see, a woman's hair in this culture was symbolic of a woman's glory. And yet we see Mary loosening her hair in order to yield her glory for what? The purpose of glorifying Jesus. Judas only had his earthly glory in mind. Mary was a passionate worshiper in the same place with Jesus as one that would just a few days later betray him. What do we do with this? What what do we see here? And a couple things of application as we head towards our close. And first is this. Our actions of worship and giving reveal our belief in Jesus. Our actions in worship and giving reveal our faith and our belief in Jesus. Now hear me carefully, I believe that God calls each of us to different levels of giving, whether that's time, talents, or treasures. But I believe the expression of that and how we do so intently speaks of how we believe in Christ. We also see this, that belief in Jesus changes our perspective on how we use our time, talents, and treasures. Belief in Christ, being a believer, it affects, it changes the perspective and ultimately how we use our time, talents, and treasures. I would ask you this question today, where you sit right now, does your heart and actions align more with that of Caiaphas? Someone who said, I'd rather just get rid of Jesus that my kingdom would stand. Does it align with Judas that you go... I want Jesus, but I'd rather have the stuff he gives than I would Jesus himself. Or do you find that you align with Mary and say, Lord, all that I am, all that I have, I yield and I worship to you. Are you in just a place of hardness that you would love it if Jesus would go away? And I would pray that you see not only did he not, did Jesus not go away, but he still, listen to this, He still went to the cross in spite of and for those that had the murderous plan for him. See, they wanted him killed. He followed through on that. But for a purpose, they had no idea. It was even to redeem their soul if they would trust him. Are you concerned with using Jesus for meeting your desires of happiness? Are there places today that the Lord is calling you to worship him? To express what, in some way time, talents, or treasures, whatever that God has given you. Are there ways that God has just been screaming at you, hey, I want you to surrender and worship me with this. It could be as simple as just opening your mouth and starting to sing louder. 
Maybe it means expression in worship. Maybe it means dedicating time in prayer and study of the Lord. Maybe it means there is something you have that God is calling you to use and give for his glory. Maybe it means you have a talent that God is saying, hey, I could really use that for my glory. Could I just draw our hearts to just consider what does that authentic action of worship look like to yield those things for God's glory? And would we be faithful to believe in Jesus and offer him our all? To my unsaved friends in the room or watching online, I encourage you to see the works of Jesus and believe. To see these different responses, to see the text, to see the miracles and believe. Many of you have heard the gospel over and over, but choose to harden your heart. I'd love to question that. Why? Why harden your heart? Like, when you look at this text and you look at the heart of Jesus, why harden to such a thing? We see the love of Christ. I would beg the opposite. I would beg that you would take a chance right now and just say, Lord, I want to soften my heart and not only hear the word that's been being proclaimed here, but receive it. And come to this place of going, Lord, I've tried so many things in my life. I've attempted to be God. I've attempted to be the Caiaphas that said, Lord, get away, get out. I've been Judas in my own heart and I've used you for my own glory and for my own happiness, if you will. Lord, take me to the place of surrender. Oh, please hear, church family, and those that are listening. God is calling us to see past, see past the world that is in front of us, and see to the eternity for which Jesus makes available. Please see, it's just an insane love. That the God of the universe, in spite of a willing, sinful hearts within us that says, I reject, reject, and want nothing to do with you, yet still says, I will redeem you. I will yield my life. I will follow through. Because understanding that your holiness in this day is greater than your happiness. Oh, may we see the heart of our God before us. And may we learn from the responses that the book of John gives us to learn. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're... Lord, I'm just humbled by your continued goodness and faithfulness to us. Lord, that you would... Jesus, that you would be faithful to go to a cross... in spite of murderous plans for people filled with sin and contempt for you. Father, that even today, that same call and that same love is on display for us. Father, please forgive us. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us, Lord, of our pride, our arrogance, the places that we hold on to the things you've given us and somehow try to claim them as our own. God, we need you. Lord, I pray right now for, for those that hearing this word and hearing from the scripture that even recognizing, Lord, what, 
What does it look like to follow you? God, I pray that you would bring conviction, that you would soften hearts. Lord, those that have run for years, for years, but they would come to the place even now of saying, God, forgive me. Lord, make much of me for your glory. Oh, Father, make us obedient. Help us to be authentic worshipers. Lord, that give generously with our lives. Lord, it wouldn't just be a portion. It would be all of it. And we would lay ourselves down from the very words that we say, the songs that we sing, actions we do, to how we use the talents and resources you've given us. Oh God, may our lives display the glory of God. It's in the incredible name of Jesus we pray. Amen.